0: Our scripture this morning, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, is in a passage we've read for the last four weeks, or five weeks. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. 21 to 35 can be a commentary on forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be From Luke 11 and Matthew 18. Children, you are dismissed to your respective classes. Before we look at the powerful scripture we read this morning, let's pray and come as priests before God for each other and for Fayette County and come as priests beseeching that he would teach us and he would speak to us. He's present. that he would speak to us and bring these words and power to each of our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray to you as our creator, as our sustainer, and our redeemer. There is no other. We have no other. Every breath we take is by your power. Every step we take is by your strength. We have no life unless spiritually or physically, and you should give it to us. And so, Father, it is right, it is wise that we would come and speak to you and lay our cares, lay our burdens, lay our concerns before you. Our Father, we thank you for how you blessed. Jessica Kenyon this week in the surgery that she had. We thank you for how you brought her through that surgery and how you have brought healing to her. We pray that, Father, there would be no complications and that you would use this surgery to bring about a complete healing Father, we thank you for bringing Ann Byers through her surgery this week. Not many of us know her as she travels some distance to come here every week. But we pray that in thanksgiving for how you blessed in that surgery. and We pray that you would keep her from complications and we pray that over the next few weeks you would bring just a complete healing to her knee. Our Father, bless her during this time and draw her, draw her to yourself. Our Father, we pray for Priscilla Turner and Janet Sartre. They're hurting. Father, unless you intervene, uh, then this this cancer will bring an end to their lives here. We have prayed, Father, that you would heal, that you would take it away. And we know, we know that, Father, one way or the other, you will either do that, you will do that either by bringing A physical healing here are that, Father, you will destroy that cancer as they live on with you. And then as you give them bodies anew that can never be destroyed in the resurrection. Either way, we know there will be a healing. And Father, we yearn that that healing would be here and now, for we know them and we love them. And yet, Father, we have learned to bow before you because you have been good to us all of our days. We can make no complaint. Father, we have been bathed in your grace even on our worst days. You have treated us better than we have treated you. So as Jesus said in Gethsemane, we pray first that your will be done. We do ask, Father, that you would give Priscilla and Janet a real, anticipation. Give all of us, bless all of us with an anticipation that looks forward to the place Jesus has prepared for us. Father, cause us not to become victims of the blindness of this secular world that cannot even see you, much less something beyond. Oh, Father, open their eyes to see. Open our hearts to Open our eyes to see. Open their eyes to see that, that Father, there would be no fear, that there would be anticipation, that they would say to live as Christ, to die as gain. Take away any fear. Our Father, we pray for Jim Bennington, for Billy Griggs. We thank you for their presence this day. They've been such a blessing to this congregation. We pray that you would continue to strengthen them at this point in their lives. Give them physical strength. Give them spiritual strength. Our Father again this morning we pray for the farmers as we see the as we have seen the rain and now we see the, the bright sunshine as we see the fields beginning, Father, to show forth the green that we love. The blooms of spring. Bless our farmers, Father. Give them a good planting season. Give them, Father, A summer that knows rain and sunshine. We pray that you would bless them in this summer, that this spring and summer, that there would be a great harvest in the fields of Fayette County. Our Father, we pray for the fathers and mothers, husbands and wives of this congregation. We pray that you would prosper them in their homes, in their marriages, prosper them in their work, in their vocations. Bless them in all they put their hands unto. And now as we turn to your word. The words this morning, Father, are so difficult. We pray that you would bring them in power to our lives. That we might be a testimony to your grace and the greatness of your grace in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The reservoir of incredible grace in a world of hatred. There's a notion in our culture that the Christian life is for weak people. It's a crush a crutch for people who can't stand on their own in, in this tough world. In their thinking, the church is mostly made up of compliant folks, easy folks. It's not made up of linebackers and CEOs, brokers climbers, fighters. I don't know where they got that idea. It's certainly not from Jesus. Jesus demands that his people do what they really can't. He demands what the world would call the impossible. He calls us to do what we don't want to do. He calls us to live against the grain of that sin nature with which we were born. Years ago, I knew a high school student who became a Christian. He was not the Christian type. He had lived out on the wild side. And so his teammates on the football team and others were having a field day. With him. They thought it was ridiculous that uh, this man was changing before their eyes, that he went to church. They thought he would cave after a while. It certainly wouldn't last. One day he was attending a Bible study after practice, and so he was carrying his Bible as he left the dressing room. One of the players laughed. And said to his friends, Only girls and sissies carry Bibles. Enough was enough. The young Christian turned and he slammed that Bible into the gut of his teammate. And he said, You think it's easy carrying this book? You try doing it a while. And he walked away. You see, it's easier to live the life of the world, than it is to live a Christian life. So much of what Christ calls me to do is against this this nature, this fight goes on within me. If I go live out of the world, I just do what my sinful nature wants to do. You know, tomorrow morning, You'll walk out into the world, back out to your work, back out to our work, back out to where we live every day. And if our theology is right, if we really understand this, we'll walk out. We may not have the Bible in our hand, but we'll walk out with Jesus. Have you ever felt like sometime you're going somewhere and you say, really, I, I I don't want to carry my Bible. I felt that. And sometimes it, it's right to leave that by. We don't wear it like a badge. But every time we go out, we go out with the Holy Spirit, the living God in our lives. And he's the author of scripture. Every time we go out, we go out with the name of Jesus Christ. I can promise you, if you're a Christian, if you know Jesus Christ, the world around you knows. You don't have to have the Bible with you; they know. And it's not easy. I was watching a father as he was uh, was teaching his child, his four year old, to swim. The boy had no love for water, and he kept resisting his dad. And finally, he said. But, Dad, I don't want want to even learn to swim. I don't want to learn to swim. I don't want that. When I read this passage and Jesus talks about forgiveness, my nature says, Jesus, I'm sorry, I don't want to learn to forgive. I'm like Michelangelo, who was at odds with a cardinal in the church. He hated him. So when Michelangelo was painting the disciples, you know what he did? He got to Judas and he painted the cardinal's face. You know, that's what we do. Peter made a noble effort to keep the desires of his old nature and still do what Jesus called him to do. Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Seven. The reason he chose seven was... The rabbis in the Old Testament taught that they should forgive three times. Well, he doubled that and added one. Seven times. Certainly that was enough. If if Jesus had said, yes, Peter, that's a good thing. Peter would have said after the seventh time, I can get that turkey. He could have done what Jesus required and held on to the old nature. But I'm sorry. Jesus says, no, that won't work. Jesus said 70 times 7, Peter. That's 490 times. But Jesus was not counting. He wasn't saying count. This is what Tyler, we were talking about the other day, the taking the Bible literally. He wasn't saying 490 times. He was saying you forgive and you keep on forgiving. Now, if you pass over that and say, well, that's profound or that's nice. Well, that's a good thing. You just don't understand. It's impossible to forgive like that. Have you ever forgiven somebody 490 times? There was a time when in my life when I came faith to say this is what Jesus was really saying. And I had to say, I had to look at him and say, I can't do that. I loved vengeance. I loved payback. I love letting others know when someone had wronged me. I would ask Christians how they control their anger. I would ask them how they were able to forgive. It was a major question for me because I looked at this and I said, I can't do that. When treacherously injured, how can I forgive? And really, why should I? There's only one answer to those questions, and Jesus gives it here. It's a profound answer. It's a powerful answer. It's a life-changing answer. Luke eleven four, 4, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Matthew said it this way, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. First, I want to tell you what Jesus was not saying. Jesus was not saying that we are justified and forgiven by God because we have forgiven others who have sinned against us. Because we have forgiven others that have sinned against us, we're justified. That would mean that we're not saved by grace. That would mean that we're saved by our own works. We just go out and forgive people and God will forgive us. You know. You know that's not what the New Testament teaches. That's not what Jesus taught. For by grace are you saved. For by grace are you saved, not by works, lest any man should boast. Secondly, it's not saying that our forgiveness of others must precede God's forgiveness of us. In fact, we we will see that's quite impossible. The whole point of the passage is because we're forgiven that we forgive. And that brings us to our first point. Don't make forgiveness easier or harder than it really is. Don't make it something that it's not. Look at verse 23. Therefore, in in Matthew 18, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, beg, and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. What happened here? The king called in the loans. He ordered payment. The man could not pay. And the king forgave him his debt. He just didn't give him more time to pay. He forgave it. He canceled it. Jesus meant for this to be a picture of forgiveness. Of his forgiveness of us. But let's say what did not happen. First, the king did not just forget about the debt. He called the man in. He called for the enormous debt to be paid. He had not forgotten that the man owed him a large sum of money. Sometimes we forget, we substitute forgetting for forgiving. We substitute that. If we're offended, we just let some time go by. We put the issue on the back burner and we say, if I think about that now, if I talk about that now, and we just walk away from it. And the effect of it in our lives Becomes lesser. And we think we've forgiven. That's not forgiveness. That's trying to put it on the back burner. That's trying to forget it. Later, someone calls the issue to mind. And we remember it and we discover the anger still there. The lack of forgiveness is still there. <laughs> I really thought at one time I was getting better. At this, And then I read a book about the biblical view of forgiveness. And it made this issue. It said forgiveness is not forgetting. It's not putting on a back burner. And I had to go stand in the mirror and say, oh, shoot. I still don't get it. That requires no effort, really, putting it on the back burner and just sort of forgiving about it. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Secondly, forgiveness is not free. This is listed under what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not free. Forgiving this man costs the king a huge sum of money. It was costly. Sometimes we think that forgiveness is just words. It's words. It's free. it, It doesn't hurt us. Don't ever tell your child, you know, just go and forgive the person. It doesn't cost anything. It's easy. No, it's not. And it's not just words. In forgiveness, we give up all rights to judgment. We give up all rights to talking about the matter. We give up all rights to holding a grudge to vengeance. We can't play the part of a righteous victim. It means we give up our anger. It means we give up our hate. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not free or cheap. Forgiveness is not condoning. The king was... Not condoning the borrow of money and not paying it back. Thinking that forgiving is forgetting. Thinking that forgiveness is free. That that makes forgiveness easier, doesn't it? But thinking that forgiveness is condoning what was done, it makes forgiveness harder. We don't want to condone what was done. And it encourages us not to forgive if we think it's condoned. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not free or cheap. Forgiveness is not condoning. Forgiveness is not trusting. The king did not turn around and lend the man another 10,000 talents. What is it? Our children say when they have broken our rules and we've come down on them for what they've done? What do they say when we put restrictions then upon their activities? I love this. Mom, Dad, you don't trust me. You don't trust me. I'm sorry. Forgiveness is not trusting. When you forgive somebody, you don't necessarily trust them. You forgive your son or your daughter. I used to wait. I used to live for when my children would seriously disobey. And they would get put in jail. And they would say, but you don't, you're not trusting me. And I would say, you are so right. You are mighty right. I don't trust you. And I shouldn't trust you. God has instructed me not to trust you. Forgiveness is given. Trust is earned. You go earn it. We can't use that. We can't say, well, I can't trust the person, so I'm not going to forgive. It's not an issue of trust. Don't make forgiveness easier than it is. Don't make it harder than it is. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not free or cheap. Forgiveness is not condoning. Forgiveness is not trusting. There's so much more we could say at this point. Forgiveness does not mean, this thing of of being a forgiving people does not mean that Christians can't be policemen or soldiers. Somehow, when, when... A Christian takes a position of nonviolence and saying, I I can't be a soldier. I can't be a a policeman because Christ doesn't want me to do that. That's not noble, folks. That's not even close to being biblical. The Bible teaches that the righteous ruler must protect his people. The Bible teaches there's such a thing as a just, War. To be waged against evil. There's such a thing as a just enforcement of law. Don't make forgiveness something it isn't. Secondly. Remember that you are very much like the person who has wronged you. Verse 28. But when the servant went out and found out one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I'll pay you back, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. We want to scream, Man, are you blind? Are you crazy? That man was in the saint. You just came. From the exact same situation. If you're going to learn to forgive, this is a huge help, learning to forgive. If you're going if you want to learn to do this, take this seriously. The person that has wronged you. Most of the time, you're going to be guilty of the same thing in some form or other. Try this. The next time you criticize somebody for something, I mean this. Just try it. Try it this week. None of us can go a week, probably not even today, without criticizing someone. So the next time you criticize, sit down and say, I'm going to do what John said. It's scripture that tells you to do this, really. Sit down and write down the criticism. Write down the person's name that you're criticizing and write down what the criticism is. And then put it on the refrigerator. Put it somewhere where you can see it. Put it on the nightstand beside your bed. Somewhere where you will see it. Then when you do exactly the same thing or something like it, go back and read it. And write down, I did this also. Listen to Romans two one. It's on your scripture sheet. Look at it. Therefore, you have no excuse, oh man. And he's speaking to everyone here. You have no excuse, oh man. Every one of you who judges, for in the pass, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I get so mad in traffic when someone pulls out in front of me. And every time I do it, 24, 36 hours doesn't pass until I pull out in front of someone. And they're saying the same thing about me that I said about them. Don't make forgiveness something that it's not. Remember that you are very much like the person who has wronged you. Thirdly, remember that you have been forgiven far more than you will ever forgive. Look at verse 24. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Verse 28. Well, when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. Do you know what 10,000 talents is? 10,000 talents is equal to $20 million. That was more money than could have been imagined in that day. It was more money than the combined earning of several countries. It was an amount of debt no one could pay. This this parable has amazing parallels to God's forgiveness. It was a debt no one can pay. It was what Jesus meant when he said 70 times 7. The man had been been forgiven more than he could calculate. Now go to the servant. The servant whose debt had been forgiven was owed 100 denarii. That was nothing compared to 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents were more than 30 million denarii. So the man who had been forgiven of 30 million denarii would not forgive the debt of a man who owed him 100 denarii. What's the message? Jesus, who tells us to forgive, has forgiven us an infinite amount compared to the little that has been committed against us. Don't make forgiveness easier or harder than it really is. Don't make it something it's not. Remember that you're very much like the person who's wronged you. Remember that you have been forgiven far more than you will forgive. Finally, we come to the Lord's Prayer. I want you to see finally the reservoir of incredible grace created in us by his forgiveness. There's a pool, there's a lake, there's a reservoir of incredible grace inside of us. There's an inextricable relationship between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others. First, that's what you've got to know about this. There's an an inextricable relationship between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others. However, his forgiveness of us does far more than just stand us justified in his court. It is far more than a model for us his great work of mercy at calvary his great work of grace and love that embraced and cleansed sinners his great work of the regeneration of our hearts and in itself is a great act of mercy and grace coming to these sinful hearts in the third person of the trinity the holy spirit changes our lives this incomprehensible salvation Creates a reservoir. What's a reservoir? Reservoir is a pool of water, a body of water that's held in reserve for the town, for the city, for the county, for whatever as water to be used. That's what Calvary does to us. A few years ago, Janet and I drove, I was speaking in Toronto, and we we drove down from Toronto to Niagara Falls. I was completely unprepared for what I saw and heard. The great Niagara River incessantly flowing over a sudden drop of 160 feet, a drop that's over a half a mile wide, 3,500 feet wide. It creates a thunderous noise that envelops a landscape. You can hear it from far away. And at the bottom of the falls, there's this pool. It's a great pool of water. Boats can go out on it. Small lake. And the Niagara River continues out of it. What made... What made that pool? What made that reservoir? The sheer massive force of that water coming over the falls, hitting the earth, hitting that rock, hitting that ground, it made the pool. Folks, the great work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The grace of a father giving his own son so that he could forgive us, laying our sins upon him because he could not forgive unless justice was done. So perfect is his justice and his holiness. The massive work of salvation so impacts our lives that we're able to do what we could not do before. It creates a reservoir of mercy and grace inside of us. Is it perfected? Will we be able to walk out after we've really encountered Calvary and forgive without sin? Always forgiving, no. That's why we've got to keep coming back because we don't want to. The sin nature fights that and we're on our knees before God. Try this. You've heard me say it before. That person that you hate, that person you cannot forgive. You don't have to trust them. You don't have to be their best friend. Just forgive. Go before that cross of Christ and say, Christ, you have forgiven me. You died for my sins. You have, have forgiven me far more than this person has done to me. But I swear to you, Jesus Christ, I will not forgive this person. You won't be able to say it. Not if you know Jesus. Not if you've been to Calvary. Why? Because the incessant flow of the great river the great ocean of God's love, the incessant flow has created something in our lives that was not there previously. It's impossible to receive such forgiveness and not give forgiveness. It's impossible to leave to receive such love and not give that love. And we're going to close our worship as we sing a hymn that says exactly the same thing